Mind Body Connection podcast. The Body and Mind. With your host, Dr. Phil Parker. Hi, and a very warm welcome to this episode of the Mind Body Connection. Today, I've got the pleasure of talking to Eddie Stern, who is one of the world's most famous yoga teachers and educators. He's uh, well known for writing, uh, bringing uh, yoga to the masses, to people who don't normally know about it in deprived areas, as well as working with celebrities like Madonna. Uh, He's just written a new book, a brilliant book, uh, One Simple Thing, about the science of yoga. He's also got a new app out which is a breathing app, which is free. We're going to talk about that right at the end as a tip. Uh, And I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, We cover a range of stuff, uh, talking about the philosophy of science in the West and the philosophy of understanding the body from the East, how those two things come together, and how thousands of years ago they seemed to know what we were only just discovering about anatomy and physiology and how these things all work together. So I think you're in for a real treat, understanding uh, the mind-body connection or union from an Eastern perspective, but with someone trained in the West. Uh, enjoy listening to the fabulous Eddie Stern. <laughs> so welcome. So thank you so much for joining us uh, for this episode. I'm really fascinated to find out more about what you've been up to. Um, I've been listening in preparation for this interview to, to other podcasts you've been doing. I listened to the Russell Brown one recently. Really fascinating stuff. So today we're talking about the mind-body connection and you are uh, standing in at the very least as an expert on an Eastern tradition. And I'm sure there'll be other ones who will join us, but a lot of the uh, the interviews we're going to have with more Western scientists people. So you're taking this role at this point for us, um, waving that flag. Uh, and we're talking about the mind-body connection. So to start with, I guess, uh, what would be your definition of the mind-body connection? How would you explain it? Well, I would say that the mind and the body are a continuum, that there's really no distinction. Um, we talk about them as separate things just for the sake of discussion because they have different processes that are happening within them. The physiological processes of the body are things that we can measure and things that we can quantify. And the things that are occurring in the mind are a little bit more difficult to measure. So when we talk about things like feelings and thoughts and emotions and imagination and creativity and potential, these seems you know they seem like kind of invisible things because they're harder to measure in the same way that we can check a heartbeat or your respiration rate. Um, though now we know that there are certain ways we can begin to measure these invisible processes, we're primarily doing it through physiological measures. Like if you meditate on you know, a loving compassion meditation, how are you measuring the effect of it? Well, from how the networks of the brain are firing and from what it does to your heart rate variability. So right there, we see that you know, even though we measure a mental or emotional process, which we normally equate with the mind, as a physiological outcome, like with heart rate or respiratory rate, um, we can see that when we have particular thoughts or have certain feelings, they're expressed exactly at the same time in the body. So, and at the same time, if something happens to the body, there's an equivalent that happens within the field of the mind at the same time as well. So, in the Eastern traditions, the mind and body are continue are considered as a continuum. They're the same thing, and what you do to one happens as an expression in the other uh, immediately, either direction. So that's a, a great answer that leads 
or covers my next question, uh, which I often ask, which is, is it a mind-body connection? And you've already kind of gone into that and gone, no, it's not. It's because as soon as we have connection and we have to have two separate entities, don't we? You know, that are connected. So the continuum idea. Um, and I was looking a little bit about one of the things I'm always fascinated about in my work is about language, the power of language and, the, and, and where words come from. And of course, yoga, uh, well, you can explain it better than me, but my understanding of yoga is it comes from the, the Sanskrit for both yoke and union. Um, is that, that, that correct? Would you like to expand on that? Yeah. The word yoga comes from the verbal root yuj, which means to join. And there's a long history behind the, worst of the, wor the use of the word yoga. It started off in the Vedas about 5,000 years ago, which are the sort of the canon of the Vedantic thought of the thought of Hinduism, uh, what was earlier called Sanatana Dharma. And the word yoga then was used to describe what happens when you fit an axle into the center of a wheel. And so the way that it fits in perfectly to make the wheel go is considered a type of union or joining. And then later on, it was spoken of, of how you would yoke your oxen to a cart. So the word yoke was in the, you know, yoga was used as yoke or to join. Later on, in the Upanishads, the word yoga was used as control of the senses. So you're trying to harness the power of your mind, which is interacting with the senses, to detach them from identification with the changing objects of the outer world because it was considered that in yoga and in Buddhism that life is suffering and what's causing, causing us suffering, identification with changing objects and wishing that those objects wouldn't change, that they would stay the same because when things change, we get thrown off and that's where suffering comes from. So the way that we interact with objects is through identification uh, with the mind via the sense organs through perception. So if you if you reverse that perceptive sense and go, no longer will I identify with objects, but I'm going to move the energy of my sense organs inward to the mind and then move my mind inward towards awareness, then I'll be joining my perceptive sense with my sense of inner being. And that's a type of union as well. So that was how it was discussed in the early Upanishads. And then later on in the yoga texts, somewhere around the 13th to 15th century, you first start seeing yoga as described as union with your individual self, with the higher self. And that's really how yoga is spoken about today. A union of your individual self with the supreme self or the cosmic self. And um, there's another way of looking at the word yoga, which is, so this first definition is yujir yoga, that yoga means union. And then there's a second word, which is yujau samadhao which means that yoga is a special type of concentration called samadhi, where your mind is able to merge completely with the object that you're contemplating with no other distractions, so much so that your mind takes on the very form of that which you're meditating upon. And that's a very special type of concentration called samadhi. So in the yoga that I follow, um, within the Yoga Sutras, this is the definition which is given, that yoga is a special type of concentration. And when you achieve these deep levels of concentration, then you gain pragna or insight or wisdom or intuition into your true nature as awareness, as consciousness. Cool. So there are lots of things that come out to me from that. First thing is, as I talked about, I'm really interested in the study of words and 
there's a word I use a lot, which is training. And I was writing a book and I thought, I wonder what, that, what does that word mean? Where does the word come from? And the word training uh, comes from the word train. And the word train comes from railways, but it doesn't really come from railways at all. Because in railways, they had the engine that did the driving and they had all these things that joined it, the, the, where we sit in, the carriages. And they were trying to find a word for it. And the, the word they came up with was, it's like the train of a wedding dress. So, it, so a train is about, it follows the leader. So training is all about following the force, following the, the, the leader. And there's something very similar about the whole yogic thing there about following, you know, where it's going anyway. And the other thing when you were talking about it was how bloody ancient that is. I mean, you're, you're quoting things like around about the 13th century, <laughs> this changed into that because it's thousands of years. And we look at, uh, this is another thing I'm kind of intrigued by, is what happened? How did we lose this? Because I don't, I'm, I'd be surprised if only the eastern side of the world understood some of these things and we didn't know it. My, my sense is we did and we lost it. And certainly we know that with Rene Descartes bouncing around in the 1600s and his, you know, division between, like you were saying, things we can perceive clearly, like the, the matter of the physicality of body and thoughts, which must be different because we can't feel or measure them in the same way. And that's where, of course, we got this massive split. But uh, it's really interesting how how ancient the the uh, the heritages of, of some of the documents that you're talking about so what's your take on why 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 is this lost assuming that i'm right and it's lost rather than we never uh, never had it to start with Do you, what, what's your take on the west ending up here and the east containing or maintaining those traditions um, so what do you mean lost? Lost in India or lost in, in the West? Lost in the West, really. This, the, how, how do we get suckered into the mind and body were different, were disconnected, yeah. uh, that we separate all these things out? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, as you said, we started separating these things out quite a lot, um, it, you know, around the, around the time of Descartes, around the time of Newton. And those guys were... You know, they were alchemists originally, and Newton was very much into alchemy. Um, the laws of physics that he described as, the, as these, you know, natural laws um, were some of the basis for science as it developed. And as the scientific age began to develop, rationalism crept in. Can you measure it? Can you quantify it? And I think that there are a lot of people that, feel that Descartes was sort of, you know, his work was misunderstood in certain ways because he was also looking for the seed of the soul in beings, which he thought was in the pineal gland. And um, which is very interesting because the Buddhists that had particular meditations on the pineal gland where you visualize liquid light coming from the universe down into the top of the head and that light stimulates the pineal gland that then releases the nectar of immortality throughout the entire body and, and reverses aging and immortalizes you. And there's some truth to that in that the pineal gland is releasing melatonin. And when you take cells out from a body and you soak them in melatonin, they stop aging. So it is sort of like the it is this, this hormone of, of immortality. It will stop aging. 
but in the body, of course, the body is going to age. We sleep every night, melatonin is released so that we have tissue repair, not just so we sleep. And tissue repair is for longevity so that we can maintain ourselves. So there was truth to that, you know. Um, and, um, and I think therefore I am, um, you know, the yogis say, I am, therefore I think. And some, what some people think that Descartes was saying, that I think therefore I am means that the only way I know my existence is through the idea that I exist, which is a thought. So it's not necessarily the process of thinking, it's the existence of thought allows a separation so that I can know something like existence. So although it seems like it's dualistic, um, it might only be dualistic on a relative sense, and um, but not on an absolute sense. And I think as an alchemist that Descartes probably functioned from an absolute level, but he was taken at a relative level, which is where duality came and where science has stemmed from. But if we go back to the roots of it, it might not be as scientific as we would like it to be. Um, so that's so that's sort of a my my current thinking on this. Um, I do I have been reading uh, the past couple of years more Plato and Aristotle and the early Greek philosophers who were pre-Socratic as well, and um, and you know Pyrrhonism and the, where the skeptics came from, and it's really really and also with Pyrrhonism. There was um, Pyrrho went to India with Alexander the Great, and he studied with Jain and Buddhist monks. And the, so the roots of the skepticism that he brought back with him to Greece was, um, was basically based on these Indian thought systems. It wasn't called India then, of course. So these Eastern thought systems that were based on non-dual principles. So there's a lot of interesting crossover that was occurring from the time of Alexander the Great, and India and Greece were not far from each other. India and Egypt were not far from each other. India and Russia and China were not far from each other also. These were all walking distances across. So, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of crossover and a lot of sharing of, of ideas and culture. And then at a certain time in the West, I think that... Um, I think that white people started thinking that they were better than the East. And I think that um, with the advent of science and measurement, that that idea was reinforced. And with England and other countries, including France and Portugal, trying to overtake India, uh, that the continuation of that superiority was reinforced in the land grab that was occurring in different parts of India. So there was definitely presence of the West in India learning these things, but there was also the cultural superiority that had to do with race and education and all these types of things that I think were part of the big mix of where we became so rationally oriented and how that became our legacy. But that's just a guess. <laughs> that's fascinating as well, because you reminded me of another thing I read years ago, because although at the same time as we're pursuing this scientific revolution, it's against the backdrop of a massive hierarchical organized religion system which is which is the boss really at that time and uh, i remember when the conquistadors went to um to mexico and um kind of middle america uh, and they often took their you know powerful priests with them and the powerful priests were quite surprised to find that the metaphor of uh, the sun uh, 
dying and giving his blood was exactly there's a metaphor within the aztecs that every night the sun died and the sunset was the red blood and it was born again and he had to to, to eat its body and they actually physically did do a bit of that over there as well and it did a fascinating kind of uh, metaphors going on against the backdrop of this kind of scientific rational rationalization of, of the world yeah. really kind of interesting conflictual thing so let's let's come to you so how did you get into this so, so one of the things i talk about is um the mind body connection or union or entanglement is not that common generally in the west uh, it's not, not taught in schools it's not part of the most of the kind of medical models that uh, most people would use so how did you find it was it always there is it something you came across as an event what happened well i think that um i think first of all when you ask was it something that was always there i think that for many people you know we have that search within us you know we have the quest that's why so many people are doing these things and we have this impulse which leads us to question. Um, and I was lucky enough in, in ninth grade uh, that these things were being taught in my school, but in a little bit of a subversive way. And that was I was going to a very, um, at the time, a very strict education-oriented high school. But I had an English teacher who was a really very um, strict and tough and exacting person. But one of the first books we read that year was Siddhartha. And in Siddhartha, which is the journey of the Gautama Buddha, basically, not basically exactly, by Hermann Hesse. And about halfway through that book, she said to us, the most, three most important questions you can ask yourself in your life are, who am I, what do, am I doing here, and what do I do next? And so, like, she drove that home, like, who am I? What am I doing here? What do I do next? Like, you need to ask yourself this question all the time. And that's the only thing that really matters. And I hated school from day one. You know, from the time, I, one of my earliest memories is being in nursery school, three years old, thinking to myself, when is this going to be over? <laughs> Acting the doors down until I'd be free from having to be in the prison of, of a you know of a of a, a square little learning box, um, and so when she told us these questions, like a light went off in my head, and I was like, yeah, exactly, like who am I and what am I doing here? Because I don't like it, and I don't like being you know defined by what education and my parents and the hierarchy says I need to do and need to be because I didn't feel that was me. I had no desire to go to university. I had no desire to do a lot of the things that were being expected. I was interested in the anti-nuclear movement. I was interested in recycling. I was interested in music and in art. And none of that was sort of available to me where I was growing up. But I knew that those were the things that I liked. And, um, and that stuff had purpose for me. But education didn't have purpose for me at that time. So it started with those three questions. And then when I graduated high school and told my parents I wasn't going to go to university, which was upsetting for them, because in the 1980s, if you didn't go to college and get a degree, you could not get a job. End of story. That's all there was to it. You know, you could get a job working at McDonald's or, you know, retail, but that's pretty much it with a high school degree. And so they were a little bit worried, but um, I said, it's just not for me. There's other things that I need to do in my life. And 
So I did them. And but those questions really were the that was what drove me forward. Doing yoga was a peripheral outcome. Meditating was a peripheral outcome of the quest to really know who I was. Interesting as well that you're I think you're well known as an educator and yet you hated being educated or the way that you're educated. I'm the same. I was an awful student. I, I just, like you, I couldn't wait. It's like how, how many more years until I'm free to make my own decisions. And now I spend my time educating. And, and in one of my books, one of my uh, acknowledgements is to, to all my teachers who taught me exactly not how to teach. You know, wow. and, and the books that I remember reading are physics books once, cause I did high level at physics and, um, I remember reading a chapter and each time I read it, I knew less than I did to start with. You know, when you when you have that experience of poor education, it, it makes you go, ah, there's got to be an easy way. There's got to be a better way to do that. So education, I think, is 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 fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Love learning. It's just the education system might not have been for us. Yeah. But a great love. I mean, now I feel at, at 51, almost 52, I feel ready now to go to university. And so I'm seriously con contemplating next year starting to work on my BA. Um, I start with some intro to bio and some physics, and I'd like to go towards like neuropsychology and physiology is what I'm really interested in. And um, But now I feel that maybe I'm ready to be in that setting. I think, yeah, I think also if you if you can find something you're passionate about, then it's then it's worth it. And also being supported by people who are equally passionate about it and, and open about it, uh, which is not always the case in academia, bizarrely yeah. enough. <laughs> so let's move to something we were talking about academia, research. Um, so do you have any interesting pieces of research that you always, is your kind of go-to about how we know that there is no disconnect between the mind and the body, that one thing influences the other and they are the same? Do you have any, uh, when, when people say, oh, what is this nonsense? Does it really make a difference? Do you have a, a piece of research that you always refer to? Well, I have a bunch of different things. Um, and um, so for a, a simple answer is an easy place to send people is to research on the upward spirals of emotion and heart rate variability by Bethany Cook and Barbara Fredrickson. And this was done in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And what they did was they had a large cohort of people practicing loving kindness meditation for I think about 12 weeks or so. And then what they did was they measured their heart rate variability, which uh, as you know, and maybe not all of your listeners know, is a indicator of cardiovascular health and autonomic nervous system function. Um, if your heart rate variability is high, then we know that the vagus nerve is doing the job it needs to do to apply and release the vagal brake with the inhale and exhale. If the heart rate variability is low and not changing, it's an indication that something is not functioning well in the autonomic nervous system. So she, they were able to show in this trial period that heart rate variability did indeed improve through only doing loving kindness meditation, which is a meditation where you sit and you say to yourself, may I be happy, may I be free from fear, may I be free from sorrow, may I live with ease. And you do that to yourself, you do it to a friend, a loved one, a, a neutral person, sometimes an enemy, and, um, and there are different phrases or different ways of doing it, but that's the basis of the practice. And that's all these people did. And just by thinking these thoughts towards themselves and towards others, they saw their cardiovascular function change, and they saw their vagal tone change, 
And so this was one of the easy ways to see that, yes, what you think does turn you into what you become. Uh, and there's a lot of research on that. I've been involved in a few scientific studies that I've designed protocols for. One was a pre-hypertensive study for African-Americans, and another was in grade point average in high school students. Uh, another was in self-esteem in middle school students, and another was in, um, and is, and I'm not too sure this study hasn't been published yet, but change in brain function in third and fifth graders over a three-year period. And this was done, done with fMRIs. Um, so I don't know the results of that one, but the other studies I've been involved in all have had positive results. Um, and the grade point average showed a 2.7 rise in overall grade point average for students who had 40 weeks of yoga in comparison to 40 weeks of gym. And this was a randomized control trial. And then in the, pre, uh, in the prehypertensive study, we saw between a five and seven mercury um, level drop in blood pressure, sleeping blood pressure, particularly in a group of, um, I think there were 120 people in the study. I don't remember how many finished, I think 86, but I'd have to check. All that information is on our website, yogaandscience.org, and the, which is a conference we put on a couple times a year. And so the interesting thing for me between um, the hypertensive study, grade point average, and all the other studies on yoga that I was looking at was that you know I was using the same basic protocol for all of those studies that we were doing, except for the self-esteem. Someone else did that study, that protocol. Um, but the prehypertensive and the grade point average, the yoga practices were not all that different. And I started thinking to myself, how is it that you can do basically the same thing and still get a positive result? And the positive result is in line with the thing that you're observing. And so what I started thinking was that, well, generally speaking, if you're breathing and moving and practicing awareness, you're helping to support the homeostatic functions of the body. And as homeostasis is supported, because the body knows what it needs to do to rebalance itself, the nervous system takes care of the rest. So that all we need to do is provide support for survival functions, for homeostasis, with exercise, breathing, sleep, food, um, or behavior, and just by supporting the things that homeostasis needs to, you know, keep having the energy to come into and out of balance, coming preferably back into balance, it knows what to do to restore the rest of your body to balance. And that's why blood pressure will start to drop if you need your blood pressure to drop, or your time on task and ability to be focused will improve if that's the thing that you need to do or your anger will begin to lessen um, if that's the thing you need to do by down-regulating the sympathetic nervous system, or your sleep will improve if that's the thing you're working on because you need to, again, down-regulate sympathetic response. So what I started looking at yoga at was a way of supporting the mechanisms of intelligence that our body already has, but that get temporarily impaired because of bad lifestyle, whether it's excess stress, poor food, bad sleep habits, not enough exercise, or poor breathing habits, if you just introduce those things, they begin to address the internal mechanisms which have been built and have the wisdom and intelligence to restore us to balance automatically. Yeah, and this is a question that I get asked a lot. So the lightning process, which is one of the things I've designed, is really, really effective for a massively wide range of stuff. So from addictions 
you know, people on street drugs, to uh, people who have multiple sclerosis, to people with anxiety, to people with gut problems, to people with autoimmune diseases. And people often say, how could one thing, you know, because they're used to this idea, you take the pill for this and not that, for not for that. Although that's not even true because pharmaceuticals like to like to spread it as far as they can. And and they find it quite difficult to get their head around one thing could really work for lots of things. There's this whole thing, master of jack of all trades, master of none, you know, that you have to have a speciality. And if if your speciality is how to get, as you say, these vital forces and the vitalistic idea of the body having an innate ability to rebalance itself, if you can remove the obstacles to it, that it will just get on with it, then it becomes quite sensible. And the other thing I often said to people is like, you look at your iPhone, you know, how many things does it do? You know, making phone calls is probably the least useful thing it does out of the, the functions that you use it for. And yet you're not cross with it because it does lots of different things. You're quite pleased because it has all these incredible functionalities. But yeah, I think that this uh, the, this innate ability of home and just in case people don't know some of these terms homeostasis basically means balance restoring thing to their natural balance and we've mentioned the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system a few times sympathetic very simply is a flight or fight response how we get into stress the parasympathetic is the opposite which is calming everything down recuperating regenerating new nurturing and nutrition and there's a dynamic balance between those we don't want to just completely be in parasympathetic all the time otherwise just be lying down doing nothing equally we don't want to be in high stress or sympathetic we need to have this dynamic balance finding what's right for us in, in every given moment um so in lots of interesting research i think particularly the the gym one is kind of interesting the gym and yoga one because that really blows up the whole is yoga just a good exercise it's like well yeah but it's more than that because you're not getting the same physiological benefits you get from just doing the physical activity of the gym so um excellent you gave us the linkage for that as well at the end what we'll do is we'll collect all these research articles together uh, for each podcast so people can get hold of the notes and they can follow it um as, the, as they listen um what else should we talk about in this fascinating conversation um i think the the Going back again to where this all comes from, um, so and, and I know that this is part of your your recent book, the the one simple thing, which is we have a, a Western kind of anatomical physiological idea of how things work. Um, we may well talk a bit more about the vagus nerve, which is a very very zeitgeist term at the moment, of course, although it's been around for a long time, um, but that might be worth talking about. But let's just go back to the the the. Indian's probably not quite the right, right word because it wasn't India at that time, but the Eastern area that came up with these ideas. Um, did they have an idea of sympathetic, the parasympathetic, of nervous systems? Again, we come back to Descartes. One of Descartes' crazy ideas was that the pineal would wiggle and the spirits would move through the pores in the nervous system and move the body. Uh, that was uh, that was his m version of it. Did they have a, an understanding of it? Um, they certainly had an understanding of what was going on. Did they have a different model for it? What what's the, what what was the the original sages version of this kind of stuff? They had a very um, complex uh, and uh, I think sophisticated sophisticated understanding of the nervous system, and they called them the nadis. And a nadi means a tuber flute. And they said that there were seventy two thousand nadis 
on the right hand and left hand side of the spine, which was a metaphorical number. Um, and the Nadis were broken up into three groups, Shiras, Dhamani, and Nadi. And the Shiras were the, um, were the blood vessels, and the Dhamani were the nerves, um, like the you know, cranial and peripheral nerves. And the Nadis were the subtle channels where energy flows that are unseen. Um, now, in Chinese medicine, you have the meridians, which are sort of like unseen channels, but they can be mapped. And the yogis had the nadis, which are unseen channels, but they could also be mapped. You just couldn't see them. Now, with the work of Neil Thies and, Neil Thies and, and other scientists who've discovered the interstitium, they have um, proposed that the interstitium might be the level of the, you know, an organ-wide communication network where the meridians and nadis could be working through. So, um, of these 72,000 nadis, they felt that there were three important ones. One was the ida, the other was the pingala, the other was the shishumna. Um, the ida and pingala are the sun and the moon, the hot and the cold, the male and the female, the logic and the intuition, parts of our being. And these roughly correlate with sympathetic and parasympathetic. So sympathetic moves us towards activity, um, and it, you know, in a stressful situation, it perceives threat and releases cortisol and hormone through signaling. Um, so it's considered to be a very sort of a male active response to the environment. And so they call this the sun channel. Um, it was masculine, male, active, could quantify and measure things uh, related to cortisol and adrenaline. And then the, um, the chandra, the moon side of us, is feminine, intuitive, um, thoughts, you know, not so much thoughts, but feelings, and seeing things in a holistic fashion rather than measuring them. Oxytocin, serotonin, um, receptivity rather than activity. And so we know parasympathetic is repair and restoration. Sympathetic is more towards, you know, acting. So you have this, um, you know, these things of the Eden Pingalo or the Sudhi and Chandra really representing these male and female, these passive and active or receptivity and effortful approaches that we have to the world and they're complementary systems. So, you know, sympathetic and parasympathetic are complementary to each other, not antagonistic. And parasympathetic and the Sudhi and Chandra, they're complementary to each other. You know, we go back and forth between them each moment of the day with every inhale and exhale, you know. I was going to so, say, I imagine breath is involved somewhere there with the <laughs> male and female in and out. So what's moving through, what is moving through the Nadi system are the, are the pranas. And there are 10 minor pranas, five major ones. And the five major pranas are prana, apana, vyana, udana, and samana. Prana means incoming nourishment, like an inhale. And apana means outgoing waste, like an exhale, carbon dioxide. Samana means assimilation. That's how the red blood cells are picking up the oxygen from the lungs. And then viana is distribution. And that's going to be through, um, you know, the blood vessels, bringing the oxygen through the entire body for nourishment. And then udana is how we take that vitality that we've assimilated and use it to express ourselves in the world. So incoming nourishment, outgoing waste, assimilation, distribution, and expression. These are basically the functions of our autonomic nervous system. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's sort of like the tie-in of how the ancient yogis were looking at the nervous system, looking at the energetic functions of the nervous system, and how they tie us together from our internal environment to our external environment. And that's basically how we look at the nervous system today. When I studied uh, anatomy and physiology as part of my undergraduate osteopathic training, and we did human dissection, and I had to learn it in huge amounts of detail, I was always fascinated. So you would, for instance, it would be examined on, could you recall the passage of the medium radial ulnar nerve through the upper arm, all the branches and everything it did? And there was loads and loads of pages about that. And then uh, there was a page about the sympathetic nervous system. Oh, my uh, God. Because... The sympathetic nervous system is considered to be, and the parasympathetic, which was barely mentioned, <laughs> uh, were considered to be not very interesting, not very sexy, because uh, they man manage the plumbing. You know, they're like the janitorial machine of the body. Nobody's that excited about that. You want to know, you know, what's moving, what are the fine movements. And the other thing is that, particularly the sympathetic nervous system, is quite variable anatomically. So you can track the course of a, a motor nerve like. Um, the ulnar nerve pretty well but the sympathetic nerves are a lot more difficult to find they vary from person to person so drawing accurate maps is much trickier and so they were kind of just not that interested with that kind of stuff and the same with the fascia the interstitial stuff they kind of mainly stripped that away because they got in the way that wasn't a, a very interesting at all when the really interesting thing of the blood vessels and the muscles um, so I remember looking at uh, anatomy books and going why is there nothing on this it's really you know, it was just like, this is a very variable thing. It's not not of much interest. But in osteopathy, it's of key interest because a restoration of the, the, the autonomic sympathetic para, parasympathetic balance is, was seen to be absolutely key to helping blood flow to go where it should do what it should do. And coordination between systems and the janitorial functions were considered to be absolutely essential. Muscles can't function well if they're not getting adequate food or oxygen or the, or the waste products aren't being taken away. So we were always much more, much more interested. But now, of course, as I mentioned earlier, there's been a kind of a resurgence in interest in the in the um, autonomic nervous system over the last 10, 20 years. So I know you know about Stephen Porges work uh, about the vagal nerve um, uh, and the uh, dorsal and ventral vagal tone. Uh, and the vagus nerve is coming up in all sorts of research. So one of my favorite bits of research, which I think I've mentioned a couple of times on different podcasts, is if you take a pro probiotic yogurt and you drink that for a few weeks, you'll actually start to get changes in the brain because we know that most of the fibers, I think 90% of the, the information in the vagus comes upwards. Interesting again, etymology of the vagus. Do you know what the vagus means? You probably do. Um, from the word um, to wander. Where That's we get right. That. Yeah, the vagrant the vague, the wandering nerve, because it just goes, again, this is, you know, it's a bizarre nerve. It goes up and down and around the, around the houses, goes, it goes, as you know, to the ear and the eye and the throat and the mouth as well as the heart. It's an incredible nerve. And it really, if, if anything, anatomically expresses this union between the brain and the body, then the vagus nerve does a very good job of it. Traveling information upwards and downwards, controlling both movement and uh sensation and all sorts of stuff and, and particularly this really interesting thing it does around how it so I, I don't know if you've seen this in your work but in a lot of the work we we see people going from being ill to being well but one of the biggest observable changes is they look different 
you know their face changes in color and shape and they look 10 years younger and not just you say that to them their friends say it to them and their other people who've known them for a few days go what's happened to you and uh, the vagal nerve looks like quite a good a good candidate for this again because of this uh, you know connection with the facial tone and the brightness of the eyes you know when you see someone who suddenly who looks like they're dead but they're not you know they've got that flat look in their eye and then they look alive and that again is probably an expression of the vagus nerve so tell me about the vagus nerve and you the yoga what have you got to say about the vagus nerves i'm sure quite a lot yeah i'm uh, you know I, I wrote about it quite a book uh, quite a bit in my book and um um we had a Stephen Porges came to our conference last year to speak, and I'm in contact with him through email. You know, whenever I need questions answered about it, so um, I'm you know feel really fortunate I can go to the uh, you know to the the holy grail of vagal researchers to get information from him and have him clarify things. And you know, Darwin originally looked at the vagus nerve, which he called the pneumogastric nerve, as the nerve of emotion. Um, to follow up on what you were saying about the brightness of the face and that the vagus nerves attaching from the heart through the trachea to nuclei in the corners of the mouth and the eyes and, and the ears were, um, were how we expressed emotion through, we felt emotion in the heart, but we ex expressed it through our voice and through our face. And um, so that's, you know, where it started entering into the, the Western science. In the, um, in the yoga system, they say that, you know, we talked about the, the Surya Nadi and the Chandra Nadi, the sympathetic and parasympathetic, the male and female, sun and moon, hot and cold, receptive and active. But we didn't talk about the central channel. And the central channel is where pure being is, is experienced and identified with, with, with awareness, um, with existence, with unity consciousness. And so the central column, the Shashumna, is said to run from the heart up through the top of the brain. And my teacher and some other teachers in India that I've encountered have said that the Shashimna runs through the vagus nerve. That it's an invisible part, you know, you can't see the Shashimna, but where it runs is that information is running up through the vagus. So um, this is one other area I talked about in the book where the yogis identified the vagus as having a very important role in unity consciousness. Um, and of course, all the things that you mentioned, I guess the, I know we're running out of time now in the interview and my battery is dying as well, but meaning on my computer, not on my individual battery. I'm at 3% and far away from a plug, but, um, that the vagus nerve is responsible for controlling inflammation in the body and that the, you know, because 80% of the vagus nerve is the parasympathetic nervous system. And when it's toned, then it's keeping a balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic response. When it's not toned, meaning the information flows going through it are not strong enough due to any of the things you already mentioned, um, we go into sort of chronic sympathetic overdrive. And when we're in a chronic sympathetic response, the body is releasing cortisol and adrenaline when it doesn't need to. And that becomes toxic in the body because one of the things that cortisol does is it uses inflammation to fight acute inflammation in the body. If we have a virus or a bacteria or a cut or a bruise, the sympathetic nervous system is going to release inflammation to that spot to begin to fight it off, whether it's through the immune system or other um, you know, inflammatory markers. So 
when we are in a sympathetic arousal due to stress or poor living habits, then we are constantly releasing cortisol and adrenaline. The body goes into an over-inflammatory response and we have a residue of inflammation in the body which reflects into the mind. And so we find that we you know, have a harder time communicating, knowing what we're feeling, um, task completion, decision making, strategic planning, sleep, digestion, those all begin to fade as well as 95% of preventable diseases in the West, heart disease, certain types of cancers, certain diabetes, digestive disorders, and anxiety are all associated with high levels of inflammation. So that when we are able to do practices which will tone the vagus nerve and downrate sympathetic response, including yoga, meditation, exercise, spending time in nature, eating a better diet, learning how to take a pause during the day to take a few deep breaths, breathing practices, all of these downregulate sympathetic nervous system, upregulate parasympathetic, reduce inflammation, and put us back in the driver's seat of, um, you know, of our being and of our brain as well. Brilliant. Now, I know we're, we're going to run out of time because your battery is going to die. There were so many things I've been thinking, oh, it'd be great to talk about that. So one of the things I heard you talk about the other day, was, which I think is very key, is uh, we're in inflammation as humans, but the, our systems, our bigger systems are in inflammation, like, you know, the financial systems, the social systems, the climate. Our environment is inflamed, you know. Our environment, the world, that's global warming is inflammation yeah. of our biosphere. And I was going to talk more about that, but I don't think we've got time for that. Maybe another time and, and possibly one of the solutions, because often people go, there's nothing you can do about that, which, again, I've written a book about uh, passive language. Another conversation to have another time is actually one of the things we can do is by getting ourselves in a better shape, because then if, if everybody on the planet was on a better shape, then things would change. And that's where we start. We start with ourselves. Um, but I don't know how many seconds left we have on the battery, but it would be great to finish with a tip or an exercise uh, we could give people to go, this is my go-to thing, simple thing to do that would help you to restore some balance uh, in, and utilize the, the magic of the, the mind-body connection because this ability to influence our health is free everybody has it it probably is and this is another question i was going to ask you the future of healthcare you know that's probably what we need to do uh, but what would be your tip okay well i think you you hit the nail on the head um right there when you said everyone does it and it's free and that's breathing um so we created an app called the breathing app and it's free it's on itunes it's on um on uh, on google play and what it does is it guides you into paced biofeedback breathing, which balances the branches of sympathetic and parasympathetic and um, improves heart rate variability and brings you into a quiet state where you can take a pause. You can do it for one or two or three or five minutes. There's um, a breathing ball that guides you or there's sound cues that you can listen to that were designed by Moby for us and uh, Moby the artist. And that's all it is. So the breathing app, it's free. People can check it out. And that's my go-to. I use it all the time. Great, simple answer. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for your time. Really, really great to hang out with you. Maybe we'll get to do this again soon because there's so much more we could talk about, find out what's going on next in your life, as you would ask is a great question. Thanks for spending time with us today. I know you've got a very busy schedule and uh, for sharing your thoughts and wisdom. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks Ali. Having me on. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. The Mind Body Connection Podcast. The Body and Mind.
I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do subscribe to us on iTunes, like it, review it, and share it. The more people know about this, the better. And remember to join our mailing list by going to philparker.org forward slash yes, and you'll get extra stuff, bonus material, and program notes. See you there.